This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every two weeks. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for supporting the podcast. Welcome to Software Engineering Radio. This episode is about Europlop, uh, specifically about some of the patterns of this year's Europlop conference. Um, this is part of the deal we've made with Hillside Europe when uh, SE Radio became part of, SE, of Hillside. The idea was to have once a year an episode about patterns and about interesting things in the patterns community and what we did in 2009 was we recorded a couple of discussions short discussions with authors pattern authors who had their papers reviewed at this year's europe conference and uh, well this is the episode that contains the results of that so um Well, I'm not going to um, let you know which uh, people I've talked to. You'll see and hear that as you listen to the episode. Okay, so let's get started. The first um, topic we want to talk about is product line engineering. Reason is that a couple of people have um, submitted patterns on this topic to Europlop this year. We've had a workshop where there was a critical number of product line aware people for feedback. So that was actually quite useful. Um, and the first person I want to talk about, no, I want to talk to about product lines and the patterns she wrote is uh, Christa Schwalinger. Hi, Christa. Hi, Markus. Um, three words about yourself. Uh, I'm working for Siemens and I was interested in aspects for a long time. And since, I don't know, 2002, I got more and more interested in product line engineering. Since You've left the sinking ship. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it that way it's okay. definitely no thinking <coughs> ship but it's not in it's not having the <laughs> big influence we first assumed yeah. on our business units and product line engineering definitely mm -hmm. has mm -hmm. a big impact so we've had episodes on product line engineering before so we don't you know we don't reintroduce the topic um, but uh, let's look at the stuff you've written with your co-author and uh, husband mm. um, Michael Kirchhoff so what did you write about um, so we wanted to more or less start off um, a bigger collection of patterns on product line engineering since there is a lot of stuff out there and good books also but there are not really many product line engineering patterns out there there's an attempt from SEI uh, but this explains more or less the specific um, method uh, on product line engineering the people developed there with their experience and we thought that there has to be some way to make the stuff better accessible. Mm -hmm. So we started off with, you know, the very early things like setting up some roles, how do you do scoping, and some general principles. So this is basically meant as a, as a starting point for other people to jump in. Mm -hmm. So we got a lot of feedback to get more concrete, which yep. is in this current state of the work, of course, a reasonable feedback but it was also you know you have to start somewhere yes. and either you start with a nitty-gritty small things or you start more in an overview way and this is the overview now mm -hmm. and we will continue working on it and we are glad or happy to accept everybody else who wants to work with us yeah this is a good point i mean we, we really want to build and i say we because i want to 
I'm involved in this, want to build a pattern language for product line engineering. And if you have experience, you, the listener, have experience uh, with this stuff and want to contribute, you're absolutely welcome to to do that. Can you give us one or two examples of some of the patterns you've had in? For example, the, the, the centralized decision making yeah. stuff, for example. So um, when, you, when you do a product line, then you, of course, have to support several products with this. And the classical way of developing products is that there is somebody from the who's representing the customer side or the product portfolio side for each product, the product manager. If you do a product line, you do several products together and you want to build reusable assets for all those products. And um, if there are only you know, all the product managers together and they try to come up with a decision which assets should be built reusable, then this eventually might be quite a fight between those because mm. everybody wants to you know get the best out of the product line for his products mm -hmm. i mean they yeah. of course are interested in <coughs> their own products the overall goal of a product line however is to maximize some you know of these abstract goals like saving money like increasing time to market like having interoperable products or things like this yeah. and therefore you need somebody who you know, advocates this common goal mm -hmm. and decides according to this common, to this so common goal. And this guy needs to also have certain power yeah. of overruling the, right. the, the, the specific right. product guys. So he, a good product manager has to have the benefits of his product in mind. Yes. And if you have good product managers, you can't make them be, you know, yes. a good peer team in deciding yeah. together on right. all the products. Yes. So you need a special role to yes. advocate for the overall product line. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you need a specific role. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not necessary to have, you know, only one person fulfilling the role sure, for yeah. a bigger organization. This definitely will be a group of people. Yeah. But you need one person to be responsible and to decide in the end. Mm -hmm. And other patterns then revolve around how do you help this one person to make the right decisions? Because this mm -hmm. one person only can decide, of course, on this, you know, is he still a product manager? And he knows, you know, the customer side or the, the needs of the different products. And there is another thing you need to, to decide what should go into the product line and this is the, the knowledge about the, the cost and this mm -hmm. is then a very technical thing so yeah. architects typically know about the cost and to estimate what a feature costs right what features cost because you have first to cast those features into something like an architecture or technical decisions mm -hmm. so this is the first step for the architect and then you can estimate the cost for this and then you feed this back to the product line product manager and he according to his knowledge on the mm -hmm. benefits and the knowledge he got concerning the cost can then really decide what's first of all inside the product line that's the first decision yeah, and the second out. decision is what is in the core asset base mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i mean if you I <coughs> as you say this is quite high level stuff but i think it reflects your experience that all the low level technology stuff and you know variability implementation stuff doesn't help much if you can't get the organization and the people to to really embrace this idea of product right. lines right so if you know how to implement variability you can do a great platform that probably never gets used right because it yeah. does not fulfill really the requirement of all the peers you have right. and if yeah. you do not have to organizational setup you probably even do the right platform but probably nobody will use it because you don't right. have the support of the organization to make people use it so there are a lot of different facets and i think there is room for a lot of of patterns or, or best practices in yep. there 
So let's switch roles briefly, because I've also <coughs> written a paper for Europlub. So why don't you ask me about that? So, Marcus, <laughs> what did you write? <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> so I wrote, um, a, a, the paper is called Handling Variability, and it is about the more technical stuff. So it's about how you cope with variability in software systems. And of course, especially in product lines, that's the whole thing. You want to, you want to express and manage variability in a, in, a, in a consistent and useful way. So you have different levels in there. Yes. That was very interesting for me when I saw it. Can you can you explain what levels of patterns you have? I mean, it's only seven patterns, but nevertheless, three yeah. three different kinds. So I have patterns. I start at the bottom now uh, because I think that's better. Although the paper starts at the top, um, so starting from the bottom, bottom, I have three patterns that deal with how which which ways of implementing variability there are in, in artifacts, in all kinds of artifacts. These may be source code files, these might be models or, or anything else. And uh, maybe I can introduce one of these patterns later. But this, the, the next layer or the next level is um, a classification of the expressive power of how to define a variability or of how to specify a value for a variability. So um, briefly, um, you can either do selection which is basically that you say a variant, or no, I should say a variation point, can be um, bound to one of several alternative configurations. You basically select one of them. And um, the other more expressive way, but also potentially more complex, is that you create manually a certain configuration. Um, for example, if you want to customize the process, some kind of behavioral process in a system, you might simply draw a state machine that reflects that process. Drawing this state machine isn't simply a, I select one of several alternatives, but you literally have to take a language, in that case a state machine modeling language, and compose the process, the state machine process. So that's, that's, the, that's two different things, and it's useful to keep those in mind. And the highest level is about how to uh, distinguish or manage or separate the low-level implementation variability and on the other hand side have a more logical view of the variability. So I have two patterns in here. One is um, uh, basically feature models so that you take the many, many variation points in the code and group them together into logical variation points that you then basically represent using a feature model. So that means if you want to uh, select something, you just select in the high-level logical representation and all the low-level implementation varia varia variation points kind of are tied to this high-level point and kind of automatically uh, change in a consistent way. And the other um, approach here is to um, use uh, basically model-driven development. So you have a model that expresses the, the system. In that model, you express variations. And then by feeding the variable model into a generator, of course, the artifacts that you get are also variable. And since one model or one part of a model that you feed into a generator usually results in different things in the generated code, I mean, the example is you have a model that describes the data structure, and from that you generate, you know, the Java bean, the database structure, the XML for networking. So you, you change the variability only in the model, and then the generator automatically multiplies that down. It's, of course, a pure incidence that you wrote something that about product line engineering that includes modeling. This is not... <laughs> yes, no, it's an incidence. I, I don't do that intentionally. But I think that um, this whole model-driven stuff is a very good fit for product lines. I also agree completely. I mean, um, 
the more mature a product line is, the more you need uh, support in, in making an instance of the product line, yes. of making a product. And I think that's uh, really the way to go, even if you can't do it probably for the whole product yes, line, right. but for subparts. And yep. you should be aware that supporting instantiation of a product is one of the main tasks of building the base assets. Yes. So if you only have a number of components there and nobody knows exactly what to do with them, you you will fail definitely. And and there is also the nice handshake between our our, our patterns when it comes to you know expressing variability, uh, not in code and not in implementation artifacts, but away from code. This is exactly yes. where product management and development come together in this yes. variability model yeah. in between. And I think it's it's a good middle ground. Like on the one hand side, you have basically configuration in feature models. It's very high level, very abstract. And if, if, you, if that isn't expressive enough, well, without models, what you do is you go to code and, and code manually your whatever specific variant want. And the model-driven stuff gives you a middle ground. It's more expressive than selecting from a feature model. It is less expressive and therefore easier to constrain and check than code and so if you know that in some space in some variation point for example you need a process that can be described using a state machine well then give people a state machine language and not tell them you know implement the state-based behavior in java which has no support for state-based behavior right right and i mean there is not only product management but eventually there is sales and people who instantiate right, yes. a solution probably at the customer yes, yes. and it's yeah. way easier for them to understand a domain specific right. language than you know they often cannot code yeah. because they are domain experts and yeah. they are sent to the customer okay i guess um Krista, thank you very much for 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 uh, participating here Thank you. So another participant of the workshop on product lines basically was uh, Dietmar Didi Schütz. Hello, Didi. Hi, Markus. So um, Didi, why don't you give us a brief introduction, very brief of who you are, what you do, and uh, well, then we talk about your pattern. Well, okay, I'm working at Siemens Corporate Technology in Munich in the Department for Software and Engineering, um, together with many colleagues, probably Frank Buschmann is known, and Krista Schwanninger from the PLE environment. Yeah, who so was on the show five minutes ago. Yep, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and what's your pattern about? Uh, my pattern is about reverse engineering of variability out of existing projects. So, usually you say, don't start a product line engineering approach on a clean field. Try to get the knowledge out of the past. And my pattern tries to, des uh, tries to describe how to do that. So the, so the assumption is you're a company, you have done products in a certain domain before, and now you notice you're doing the same all the time or similar things, and now you want to product lineify what you're doing. And your, your, your pattern describes of about how to extract the variability out of the existing products. Right. So we have a lot of knowledge about the variability on the solution side because um, the engineers are smart and they try to reduce effort as much as possible. And on the other side, product line engineering starts in the problem domain. And so we have to link these two bo both two together. And mm -hmm. um, the difficulty is to find the right features to the variability we already support. Mm -hmm. So can you give us two or three bullet points about the most important steps in doing that? How do you go about extracting existing variability? The most important step in my point is, since it's all about effort, where do, where do you get the best results of, of what kind of documents? Mm -hmm. And so since we are looking for um, features on the user side, 
It's the user-related documents like user documentation, requirement specifications, feature lists. If they exist, they are really a good source to extract that knowledge. Mm. So it's not necessarily the existing code base. It's not necessarily the code base. If you have to go to the code base, you can do that too. But um, you have much more code than other kinds of documentation mm. usually. And so you have to spend much more effort to get the right information out of that. Right. And also it's solution side variability and has nothing to do necessarily with variations that the customer wants. Right. For every, for example, if you do it according to your um, change log in the code, you have to look for every change you did. What was the root cause for that? Did I do it because I needed another kind of functionality there? and justify if there's a feature behind it or if it's simply a bug fix. So in some sense, your paper describes the, the ugly truth because you don't start with a nice, very systematic domain analysis, but you rather say, okay, let's, let's, let's look at what we have and, and extract it from there. Yeah, the domain analysis is something um, kind of theoretical in the beginning. It's difficult to do it completely and There's a lot of knowledge in the past, and this is probably much better than a forecast on the future. Right. Okay. Very good. Thanks, Didi. Thanks, Markus. So the next person we want to talk to is uh, Klaus Markwart, who wrote about... Well, we won't say that as yet. Uh, so Klaus, hello. <laughs> hello, Markus. So uh, please uh, say who you are. Um, yeah, I'm Klaus Markwart. I work for Jager Medical, um, building life supporting systems. And uh, my position is uh, platform program manager. Okay. So uh, you could have talked about the product line stuff that we've talked about before, but uh, we wanted you to talk to something else. You've written uh, patterns about dealing with complexity this year. So um, I think that's a very relevant topic. It's also one that's not so very easy to, to grasp. So before we look at your patterns, um, what is complexity? Um, let's, let's look at complexity just a bit from the outside, um, because I think complexity is a, is a friend or a comrade to our projects. We, we happen to have complex projects, and I wonder why that is. Um, this is maybe a natural thing to happen, because the more simple projects are, are more easily done, so they are less discussed and less attractive to engineers right. because engineers love complexity and they love solving complex problems. If they are solvable. They, If don't, they, want are solvable, to, they yeah. don't want to give up. Yeah, right, absolutely. Um, and there's a large uh, subjective um, part to complexity. Like some people are more capable in grasping and dealing with complexity than others. On the other hand, complexity is a project risk. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So we need to deal with complexity. We <laughs> we needn't just uh, kind of embrace it, but we also need to to tackle it to some extent. Uh -huh. um, but with this, we need to be somewhat careful because um, what I learned is that um, if you just start fighting complexity, yeah, like introducing more control, more measures, more tracking, whatever, um, or more abstraction layers, or more abstraction layers, it it somehow it it uh, it strikes back uh -huh. at a different place. So. If you add more management level effort, for example, uh, you kind of increase the complexity and maybe you, you even set the wrong triggers. It's a little bit like with energy, right? You can't create or destroy energy. You can only change the form. So if you, if you, if you put in more management to reduce some of the complexity, you create new communication overhead and that's also complexity. Right, absolutely. So complexity is also related to size of the projects. So when you have a certain size, 
you, you can't really tell where, um, but when you are in a complex situation, you identify that suddenly um, the complexity is way higher than it was before just by adding maybe two more subprojects. Mm -hmm. So, so the approach you have or you propose or you've written about in your pattern language is to, let's say, mm, tackle complexity indirectly by, by doing what? <laughs> yeah. um, the, the usual approach, um, like divide and conquer or separation of concern, um, it doesn't really help with really, really, really complex systems. It's more like um, uh, slicing a problem. Mm. Uh, slicing a problem can make for smaller problems, right? Um, but when you have um, many different influencing factors, um, then you cannot resolve all of them by just saying, yeah. I do separations of concern. Yeah. And this is why the, the approach I propose is um, that you deal with your contributing factors. So you have many potential factors contributing to your complexity like including size, including amount of requirements, including um, how many teams are um, involved, including continents, including what kind of process you have to follow and so diversity on. Diversity so of stakeholders. Diversity of stakeholders. Of course, there's also technical diversity in there and so on. So there's, there's, there's a lot of contributing factors. And my approach is um, to write them down and classify them. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I'm, I'm not the first one to suggest um, classifying complexity. Um, Brooks had started this already and mm -hmm. uh, he's famous for his essential versus accidental right. yeah. um, complexity. And this is helpful already. Um, I uh, propose to add another dimension to it. So it's kind of orthogonal. Mm -hmm. um, that is say, we have not only essential and accidental complexity, but we have also imposed and chosen complexity. Mm -hmm. And there I consider real-world projects. I've seen where, where we say, okay, this kind of component is being outsourced or developed with a different tool or, or whatever, developed by a different team at another continent. Um, and so the, the outline of the project so how it's defined kind of imposes some complexity, mm -hmm. at least often it does. And, and what do you do about it? Um, first thing is I need to become aware of that. Mm -hmm. yeah, so this is, this is why I say uh, just write down all your contributing factors. Um, the typical thing is you are not aware of all contributing factors in the very beginning of the project. So this is an ongoing process, yep. just, just like risk management. Yes, I was about to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Second thing is when you identify that you have um, complexity issues and many factors that you consider being imposed, um, then you need to take control of them. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is the most important thing. So things that are imposed from the outside are basically out of your control. Okay. Yeah. Um, but in most organizations, it's uh, ultimately more important to have a successful project mm -hmm than a failed project that has adhered to all yeah. artificial boundaries. So we don't have time to step through all your patterns, but can you give us two or three examples of how you get from imposed to chosen <laughs> in order to make uh, the, 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 the uh, complexities controllable? Yeah, sure, I can. Maybe the, the one that is obvious in what we've talked about is, is the renegotiation. Mm -hmm. So um, when we identify certain um, imposed factors as obstacles to project success, then it's uh, the, the duty of the project managers to make this clear and to approach their stakeholders or, or sponsors and say, in this setting, it can't possibly work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when this is being accepted, 
then such a factor suddenly um, goes down from imposed to chosen because the project may then choose whether this is uh, a factor to consider or not. So they may choose to do something else. Mm -hmm. And this is what, uh, what I mean, and, and taking control mm -hmm. or gaining control um, over your complexity co contributing factors. Um, then there are some, some more or less, I'd say, obvious things like um, piecemeal growth, uh, that you do not uh, try to solve all problems at once. Mm? So this is kind of uh, slicing down complexity because you, you do not look to all problems you have to solve, but you only look for a small set of problems. So you, by piecemeal growth, you mean growing your project and team size in a piecemeal way or the system you're building? Uh, basically, it's the system you're building. Okay. Yeah. Um, but team it's size... It's the agile idea. It's, it's basically the agile idea. Okay. Yeah. Uh, whereas I, I, I must say, uh, the agilists haven't been the first no, one to sure, mention this. Course, uh, yes. But today uh, it's known by agile. Right. Um, more? Um, what I find useful is um, to budget um, the complexity that comes from the combinatorial explosion. You have to, you have to explain that. Okay. <laughs> um, if you have many things that you can configure. Yeah, ah, I see. Huh? Or many options to support or whatever, mm -hmm. then you gain complexity because you have to support each branch. Each combination. Uh, of each combination and yeah. so on. And you have not only to implement it, but also to understand it, to document it, to put in the requirements, yeah. to test it, and so on. Um, and typically, um, due to indecisiveness, or due to uh, late requirements changes, you tend to add to that configurability. Mm. And th this is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So if you have a budget, like I only support this amount of um, yes. decisions yeah. that are visible to end users and administrators, yeah. um, then whenever you, you are being approached by saying, oh, we need to do this and that, but in a configurable way, then you say, okay, which other configurations which may I take away? Of course, the challenge of all of that is that you need the, let's say, political clout to be able to do that as a project manager. You have to stand up to the stakeholders and say, no, we won't do these other five different configuration factors, which is because it's going to kill us. And they probably won't believe and say, yeah, 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 do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's the problem in some sense. <laughs> well, the, the project manager is kind of left alone in that respect. Mm -hmm. Because the typical situation is that stakeholders uh, say, we want this. We and need this. And engineers say, yeah. yes, that's easily done. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. But even if they say it's tough, it does, nobody cares because stakeholders typically don't talk to engineers but rather to the project manager. Yeah, but the project manager is, is responsible for, for scoping the project yeah. in a way that it can be successful. Yes, yes, yes. Um, another one is that uh, I consider important, and it's, it's not mentioned in the, in the agile world, is that project teams need to gather domain knowledge. Right, yes. Because that's, that's kind of um, a myth that just software engineering skills can solve all complexity problems. Yeah, true, yes. So... Um, oh, well, what you're saying is that if you understand the domain, something that is apparently complex maybe isn't because you don't understand why and what's going on. Uh, the, the personal ability to deal with complexity yeah. is certainly increased if you understand the domain you're working right. for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, very good. Um, that was brief, but I think that's it. We have to cover five other people for this episode. So, close. thanks very much for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. So the next set of patterns we're going to talk about is about open source projects, about successful open, open source projects, in some sense right. about the performance of open source projects. And we're talking to uh, Michael Weiss. 
Hi. Hi. So um, why don't you uh, briefly say who you are, what you do for a living? Um, I'm Michael Weiss. I'm uh, from Germany, uh, from uni precisely originally, uh, currently living in Ottawa, Canada, uh, Carleton University. I'm also this year's uh, conference chair for, for Europop. I think that's one of the rare cases where the conference chair had time to actually write something for the conference he's chairing. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, what is your, your pattern stuff about? It's, I was, I'm very interested in open source projects. I've been involved in a number of them in, through a variety of ways, uh, both as a developer as well as you know, working with uh, some open source projects. So I thought of for a while to capture some of that knowledge and patterns form. Mm -hmm. Hopefully something larger at the end. Uh, yeah, so, so like a big pattern language kind of thing. Right, yes. And the patterns you have now, is that already the complete language or is it more considered oh, more like a starting point? It's a starting point, definitely. Okay. Um, yeah. So so why don't you give us two or three examples or, uh, well, no, let's let's maybe start with the general problem. I mean, open source projects probably aren't all the same. So, Absolutely. so your, your idea was to classify them and find out what the best practices are. Right, yes. Yeah. So the title here, Performance of Open Source Projects, so I was trying to focus on a specific aspect because there's so many aspects. You could talk about the community, you could talk about your IP, and uh, I don't know where to stop. Right? Yeah. Uh, um, I was looking in particular here how a, you know, a small to medium-sized company could um, uh, develop the products faster using uh, an open source approach. So mm -hmm. not necessarily by using open source, that's one component, but also using open source as a strategy. Right, okay. Um, and when I say performance, it's about, uh, you know, that uh, that open source really helps you reduce the time it takes to develop uh, software. Yeah. Um, that you, uh, you also increase the uh, quality of the software for a variety of reasons. For example, you build on other pieces of software that have already been proven. And right. Uh, so. so it's not about performance in the sense that a system is fast. Absolutely. So this is the performance that we, when we talk about product development performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so, okay, now, um, two or three patterns that are representative of, of what you've worked on. I see penguins here. I like One penguins. Pat <laughs> uh, that's a pattern <laughs> I'm particularly fond of. Uh, uh, and it's, I think it's, one that you can really say that is a, you know, clearly a pattern in that and, mm -hmm. and that area that has been identified you know in, the, in its nature by others uh, um, so this is called credible promise and the reason why it's about penguins uh, <laughs> it's well not just because of course the alliteration to, to, to open source right you know right. the yeah. next being yeah um, but actually more deeply because one key thing that you have to address in open source is you want um, to get other developers to contribute to your project. Mm -hmm. So many people you know, start out uh, thinking about open source and say, well, let's make my code open source and the developers will come. Well, it doesn't quite happen like that. You know, the metaphor of the, 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 the penguins here helps is uh, with penguin, penguins when they're on the flow of ice, you see them on flows of flows of ice and they, um, you know, they're all hungry but none of them dives in first mm -hmm. without the others diving in at the same time. Yep. So this basically creates a critical mass of, 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 of develop, you know, plenty to open source and now the, right, the path is about that you have to have a critical mass. Why do you call it credible promise? Okay, so, um, right, so the, that's the concept here is that um, what I'm, when I'm starting an open source project, it has to be enough uh, it has to be implemented far enough so oh, that I others see. will want to contribute. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not too far, mm -hmm. because then it's no longer interesting for them. Right. 
Um, But it shouldn't just be an idea. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very rarely an idea will work. I mean, there are cases like Sendmail uh, and a couple of others, you know, the the, uh, SVN SVN, uh, system, for example, where there was just some very uh, developers with a lot of reputation who threw out an idea. Mm Mm-hmm. And people join. Mm-hmm. But usually, you have to show something right. that works. Right, right, right. That's a, I, I, I would have. I just saw the, the yeah. title, and I would yeah. have expected it's written from the perspective of uh, the adoption users, right. because right. you only you only use open mm-hmm. source projects right. if you believe that they pr- are able to deliver Correct. on the promises yes. they make. Right. So that's yeah. maybe another facet. This of is the another same. facet yeah. of it. Uh, this is from the perspective. Right. You know, I want to yeah. sure. create an open source build a project around open source, right. um, perhaps I have some code, mm-hmm. um, or I'm starting from scratch, mm-hmm. something from scratch, and I want others to join. Mm-hmm. Another yeah. one? Uh, another one that I, um, I think building a shoulder on the shoulders of others is one mm-hmm. that uh, I found to be very true. And uh, one project that we, uh, I was quite closely involved in, uh, and the first prototype of the system was a web conferencing system. We put it together in, uh, in a very short time using open source uh, components, you know, we needed to convert PDF, PowerPoint to PDF, so we used OpenOffice, and a variety of building blocks that you could very quickly prove the functionality that you wanted to, uh, to build. And then you could you know, maybe decide, well, maybe there's a better way of doing something, or you can strip down. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But it allows you to get up to speed. The problem here basically addresses, you know, how do you really build that critical mass that you need quickly? Mm-hmm. And one key way is, you know, use assets or c- components, code that others yeah, have written. You don't reinvent all wheels yourself. Exactly. Yeah, only the, the steering wheel that's important, maybe, or something. It's something that differentiates open yeah. source a lot from, from... Yeah. Yeah. One last one, maybe? Sure. Um, the parallel development is kind of cute because of the picture, so you <laughs> uh, it shows you to, 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 uh, to planes... Uh, yeah. In parallel. Uh, so basically, the need here is, the, so you know, so you you always you have users who depend on uh, or developers who depend on the software that you're writing. Uh, so, at the same time, you want to evolve it. So mm-hmm. how you, you know, there's a tension here, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, the the basically the, the tension can be resolved by creating one release stream that's stable, and another release stream that where you or multiple where you have the all these. Uh, where you can maintain all these yeah. experimental developments. It's not specific to open source. Yeah, absolutely not. No, yeah. this is. But it's you know it's very visible in open source. Right. right? You have yeah. many projects. Or, yeah. Uh, it goes. You know, many projects that have you know releases. This is the zip file that you load. Right. And this is the nightly build. And this is the kind of the the most right. current build. Right. So yeah. there are kind of really different you know risk levels that people are comfortable right. with. You know, too, <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> risk level is the right word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Cool. Very good. Um, so. Um, you're obviously planning to continue to work on this right. stuff. I think that could be an interesting topic for, for, for a full show. So I think once it's enough stuff, yeah, be, so you can yeah. talk about it for yes. 45 minutes, I guess we can get back together and uh, do a full show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So here is our next uh, guest on this podcast. Uh, show of short interviews and our next guest is uh, Lise Vatum. Um, hi. Hi. So um, well welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, please give you our listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit. Okay so I'm 47 years old. <laughs> okay. I live in the US although I'm Norwegian. Okay. I started my career uh, from computer science working for uh, Marine Seismic where I did the software development. 
and I did that for some years. And after that, I've been in software management. Okay. And um, the stuff you've written about at this year, Plop, and also in previous years, I understand, is uh, distributed teams, right? Yes. And your patterns help cope with the challenges and problems and, yeah, well, issues in distributed team software development. Yes. So we, uh, over time, we realized we do a lot of that in the company, but the challenges have increased as we are growing more and more global mm -hmm. and including more and more geographical, geographical sites in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So um, what's the, the biggest three challenges in, in this setting and, and how, how do some of your patterns address those challenges? So I'd say most of the challenges, uh, if you go back and find the root cause, you'll find that you end up on communication. Mm -hmm. A very big challenge is how do you communicate on architecture and a very heavy technical material. So if you are on multiple sites, it's difficult enough when you are together, but where you're spread out and maybe the software industry doesn't have very, very clear ways of communicating architecture. Mm -hmm and uh, no very, very clear standards. How do we really make sure that everybody are on the same page, understand the architecture and the development that is done locally at the site is compliant or, or, or is following the architectural principles and mm -hmm. not breaking it. So, and uh, what do you suggest to do about that? <laughs> so I think most of the patterns, so the patterns are actually kind of in three levels. Right. There are some that are for the team and they would be more applicable within this area. There's also things about how you set up the whole project and how the organization around can support mm -hmm. the project. Mm -hmm. So again, it's around communication and you know the ability actually to come together. So that's a fundamental um, uh, recommendation I would make. I know in the industry today, it's very often difficult for teams to be allowed to travel and come together. But if you really um, are doing complex development over some time, not just a few weeks, but maybe a year's mm. type of development, uh, the investment in actually bringing people together is very important. So mm -hmm. uh, basically what we suggest is that, first of all, you come together early and meet and build up the knowledge of each other in the team and build up the trust, trust yeah. and start developing the architecture together. And mm -hmm. then you come together on certain intervals, you know, maybe every six weeks. I think that's what we would recommend, not more than six weeks. And you can, you know, uh, travel to multiple sites. So it doesn't need to be the same people traveling all the time. So if you have two or three locations, you, you alternate so that everybody yeah. spends some time traveling. During the times that, that you meet together. Um, there's another thing that's kind of the foundation here is some agile thinking. Um, what if you work with iterations, try to finish an iteration together and start the next. Right. That's and then good, you yeah. try to align on the architecture, on the user experience, and and sort of you know you kind of align everybody on where you are. Uh, what the user feedback is, plan for the next iteration. Then you may have a couple of iterations that you are done that are done remotely. But again, mm -hmm. the next time you meet, you synchronize it with an iteration mm -hmm. trans, uh, transition phase. So this whole travel business can become quite expensive. So I guess the primary reason for having distributed teams is probably not the idea that you want to save money, but more that you can't motivate or make you know, the good people you have everywhere to, to, to move together. So this is not about outsourcing, right? No, it's definitely not about outsourcing. Although I think people who do outsourcing may find interesting material in there. 
but they will they will argue that if they do outsourcing and then have let all this travel cost then the benefit goes away so that's why they don't travel which of course is why outsourcing then yes. sometimes fails so if we park that for a couple of minutes we can talk about you know where we came from doing this mm-hmm. um, so like many big organizations uh, they grow by acquisitions ah or there may be a, a desire to be present in a certain market, mm-hmm. which means that uh, you want to, to um, start up an activity in another country or in another geographical area. Mm-hmm. And over time, you will realize you have experts in multiple locations that when you go for something uh, new, they need to be involved. And it's not really feasible to move them all to right. one site. Yeah. So that's kind of the background, I think, for, right. for a lot of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're outsourcing, I think there, there are other patterns, not necessarily just from this, but also from other organizational patterns that, that you need to think about how you structure the work versus where people are. Mm-hmm. And um, even if you're outsourcing, if the whole team is in a, it's one location, actually, and you, you've outsourced the whole project, they are actually together. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So um, two or three more representative patterns. I guess the idea that you should travel and meet is... Well, in some sense, it's obvious. It's just that many people probably don't want to see the reality. Yeah, but it's that combined with uh, what you are actually doing when you are together. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should talk a little bit about what happens when you're not together. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So we have uh, some patterns about, you know, flexible work hours, for instance. So uh, that's very important when you are in very different time zones. So that's what we started doing. Initially, it was a lot between Europe and the US. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't such a big challenge as if we, when you included Asia and you have teams in the US and teams in Asia that don't really have any overlapping work time, it becomes very challenging. So trying to emulate some of the meetings and communication that you have in agile teams by a combination of more formalized working uh, meeting time so that you know when people are people are available mm-hmm. so you can okay if i have an issue i know that you know this evening there will be a get together and i can bring it up yeah with uh, a development environment and and communication tools for the team so that they can also hook up whenever they need to chat video webcams yeah Okay. Do you, do you also look at the tooling? I yes. mean, like, you know, distributed version management or something like yes, that? Yes, I would like to talk about that too. So mm-hmm. that's another thing that is very important. And I know when I'm presenting this in, in uh, at, at conferences and talking to people from other companies, uh, they ask a lot of questions around that and say, this is very a, dif- a very difficult team. So that's where... Uh, some of the practices for on a company level or at least for the engineering organization come in that you have to do an investment in uh, trying to standardize workflows and tools so that we actually use the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. We do actually have an internal source control and build uh, configuration management system that is totally transparent on locations, Right. which is very, I, I think, I don't, I'm not sure we recognize the importance of it. But without that tool, I think we would have been in trouble. If mm-hmm. you have different source control, yeah, yeah. different code bases, yeah. uh, it makes it very, very difficult. I think that's, it's also important because although you said that you cannot obviously move everybody to the same place, I think you will have many people moving around over the years. Like, I mean, if you have the chance to go to basically any country on the world, some people will want to do that. And if you have the same infrastructure everywhere, it's much easier for them to get up to speed again. Yes. I'm actually often asking other companies how they're doing this when they are large organizations. And I realized that 
we may be a little bit special in this that we are operating as one company worldwide mm. and so we have when you're moving around from location to location you will see that you meet the same tools and the same uh, maybe even the same to some uh, extent the same culture the mm -hmm. same thinking mm -hmm. and I think that happens also because we do move a lot of people right. so typically in each of our development locations maybe up to 40% of the people there will be what we call expats they are not <laughs> local yeah. and and they move regularly around in the system and mm -hmm. bring knowledge from one location to mm -hmm. another location is that a side effect or do you think that's even a, a, necess a necess necessity to make this distributed environment work i think f uh, in our organization it's deliberate mm -hmm. uh, i not i think it's Maybe not 40% is necessary, but right. some movement of people also to build up that uh, trust and respect thing because to avoid this them and uh, they and us right. type of thinking. Yeah. Okay. Anything else I forgot? Well, I, your, your pattern stuff is probably much bigger. Um, one more you want to you think is kind of a highlight? Yes, so let's talk a little bit about what's happening also on the big picture in the organization. Mm -hmm. So there are things that need to be in place for this to work also on the organizational side. Uh, initially, when we started, we tended to not have the project understanding clear. Mm -hmm. So you might have people in one location reporting to a local manager, but actually working for a project that was based in another location. Yep. So that was difficult. Uh, so, th so you need to set it up as a clear organization, Uh, around the project with clear decision making so it's not confusing who is doing what mm -hmm. and uh, and also maybe things like financial system and human resource systems to be able to to work with that one project team which is actually on multiple locations mm -hmm. okay very nice um thank you okay. for being on the show thank you so here is our next guest um it's uh paris afgario i hope that's the Spelled correctly? It's pretty much. Okay. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so so uh, please uh, introduce yourself so people know who you are. Uh, so I'm from Academia. I'm a professor of software engineering in the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Um, and I've been doing research in the field of patterns for the past maybe six or seven years. And uh, I've um, started together with a couple of colleagues here in Europlop, uh, Uwe Stoon and Neil Harrison, uh, an attempt to try and <coughs> reflect upon the actual usage of patterns. Uh, so not just about writing new patterns, but about using the existing ones. Mm -hmm. Well, kind of case studies and scenarios where they fulfill their promises. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we are looking at both practitioners and academics what kind of approaches exist in, uh, uh, in the industry right now. Uh, approaches that are not particularly scientifically sound, but they still work. <laughs> approaches that can you know, use patterns to solve different problems in right. companies or organizations. Yeah. And on the other hand, we have uh, academics that are uh, performing research about the use of patterns, try to make it more systematic, if you like. Mm -hmm. So this year you have submitted a paper about using patterns to avoid the architectural knowledge in a system just disappearing into nowhere once the system is right. built. A problem we all know. Right. So uh, why don't you elaborate on the problem for a minute or two and then we look at a couple of patterns or well, how you use patterns to, to avoid right. this problem. So uh, software engineering is in essence a knowledge intensive activity mm -hmm. throughout the, the whole life cycle. 
the, the different uh, roles in software engineering produce knowledge and consume knowledge. And by knowledge, we mean uh, pretty much every, every information that is relevant. For example, uh, the stakeholders um, may have concerns about the system to be built, if you like, requirements. This is important knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, the architects make decisions about the yes. system. This is also knowledge. Uh, those decisions have rationale. Why were they made? Yeah. This is also important knowledge. Uh, the problem is that usually this knowledge resides in people's heads. It's tacit knowledge. Mm -hmm. And eventually people move around organizations and the knowledge dissipates. It gets lost. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are trying to uh, solve this problem because when knowledge gets lost, pe uh, people spend an awful lot of effort and, of course, money to try to recover the knowledge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so... The, the the other side of this problem is that documenting knowledge is very expensive. Yes. If you have people like architects who are very expensive themselves, you cannot really ask them, can you stop what you're doing and uh, write down all the design decisions yes. you made? That's not going to happen in practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, suggestions to solve that problem. So we are uh, trying to solve this problem uh, by using patterns. Well, that was not a surprise. <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> right. The thing about patterns is that they can provide you with a cheap way to document the knowledge. And how do they do that? Uh, patterns carry a lot of uh, important baggage with them. So they have a very well-documented problem. They have a very elaborate solution as well as uh, consequences, uh, related patterns, and all that information. Now, this is reusable knowledge. Mm -hmm. So patterns are applied in a system, and architects and designers apply those patterns. Even if uh, architects and designers do not explicitly document their decisions, mm -hmm. they have applied those patterns. So just by looking at those patterns, you can somehow mine the decisions that were made. So, so you're trying to extract which patterns have been used in a system from existing resources, code, documentation, whatever? Exactly. And because a pattern has a well-defined set of circumstances when it should be used and you know, why it's used, what it does, um, that allows you to kind of infer that those problems the pro pattern solves are uh, there in the system. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have created a kind of a meta model. What does it mean to have a, an architectural or design decision? Uh, what are the different uh, you know, requirements associated with that? What are the different artifacts like models or code that are derived from that? And we sort of use the information from the patterns to fill in all the knowledge that has been lost. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are uh, inferring, for example, what we call context knowledge. So the problem part of the pattern, which is somehow related to the requirements. You know, you applied... Uh, I don't know, pipes and filters just because you wanted to have uh, a system that uh, implements a specific process uh, which is yep. sequential. Yep. Uh, then we have the um, uh, reasoning knowledge which is basically why you made, what the kind of decision you made and why. Uh, and then we have the design knowledge, which is the actual uh, end result, uh, the, the solution that came with the pattern in terms of components and connectors, and of course, uh, essentially code. Mm -hmm. 
Now, since you're in academia, you cannot just, you know, walk around through the world and say, this is great. I can do this. <laughs> so I can just say, I, my experience tells me this is cool stuff. So uh, some people believe it, others don't. But you can't do this. You have to prove this stuff. So yeah. do you have any evidence? Did you do any experiments um, that kind of prove that this approach of, uh, you know, recovering architecture through patterns works? Uh, not so far. Okay. Uh, what we have as experience so far didn't have to do with patterns. It had to do with how organizations, um, what kind of knowledge they they use in their uh, business and how that knowledge helps them to perform their day-to-day uh, -day activities. Uh, we found out a bunch of problems there, but we also found out a number of solutions. For example, we saw that in different organizations, documenting knowledge is very expensive. So another solution is to have personalization, uh, which means that you don't necessarily write everything down, but you know what person knows ah, what. Okay, yes. So this is also you know, a more pragmatic way to, uh, mm -hmm. to spread knowledge within the organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As far as uh, this particular work about patterns, uh, we are just starting with this, and our aim is to basically implement this thing into a repository that acts as a tool to uh, recover knowledge uh, in specific case studies. Um, and we are, of course, looking for industrial partners. We have a couple of uh, companies in mind, but uh, no specific results yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you've also uh, run a workshop here where you've tried to trick people into using this stuff <laughs> so you can verify that it actually works. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, we made a, a sort of an empirical study where we had a control group and a test group and the control group uh, had to document knowledge of an existing system without explicitly using patterns and the test group did the opposite. They were asked to explicitly use patterns. Mm -hmm. So we, we sort of gathered the data out of this um, experiment and we uh, still are analyzing the data but yep. as a preliminary result we found out that the quality of the knowledge that has been recovered with the use of patterns is higher mm -hmm. than without in some sense that's one of the original promises that patterns you know set out to deliver which is if everybody knows patterns and if you mention them in conversations and also in documentation and other things this acts as a like li little bit of like like a macro right you mention a word you can expand it to all this knowledge that's behind the pattern exactly. so you're kind of trying to prove that and we are trying to fill in the details so mm -hmm. just by saying that you know this is a client server using a broker you've mentioned two patterns but you haven't said anything about the details uh, what was the problem you were trying to solve what other alternative patterns yet we have considered mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. why you chose a specific one and uh, what are the consequences to the system quality attributes for example mm -hmm. so all this information is implicit when you say the name of the pattern and we're trying to have a more systematic approach of documenting that mm -hmm. cool very nice so um, I guess once you've uh, uh, finished this work, you might maybe come back to the show and tell the listeners what, what, what the results are. Uh, we'll be happy to do that. And, uh, well, in our community, we usually make a lot of claims. I mean, the academic community. Yeah. We make a lot of claims, but uh, not always provide evidence. And our approach is evidence-based, so we are really... Mm -hmm 
performing empirical research and trying to have concrete evidence that this stuff actually works. That would be a good a new buzzword, evidence-based software engineering. <laughs> you know, that there, it, it, there is evidence-based medicine, so something like that. Well, that's what empirical software engineering in right. essence does. Yes, okay. Okay, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Okay, so here is yet another guest for this uh, episode on Europlop pattern material and pattern people. Welcome. Thanks. And uh, I didn't mention your name because I wasn't quite sure how to pronounce it correctly. So why don't you <laughs> introduce yourself and pronounce your name correctly? Okay, I'm Velipa uh, Kaleranda from Tampere University of Technology which is of course located at Finland. Okay, which, which we've had an episode with Juha uh, Pekka Tolvanen from Metacase, so yeah. people probably know the, the accent. <laughs> 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 so, um, so you've written a paper on um, architecture patterns for distributed embedded control systems. Um, and before we look at some of the patterns, I think it's a good idea to, to let our listeners know what distributed embedded control systems are and what the problem is, wh why there is specific architectural patterns for them. Maybe I should tell a little about our project. We are doing architectural evaluation for the embedded control systems industry in mm -hmm. Finland. And we have visited some companies there and collected a pattern language there. Mm -hmm. uh, the systems are like elevators or forest harvester or mining trucks and so on. You get the idea mm -hmm. which, which kind of machine we are talking about. Mm -hmm. And the main characteristics of software in the industry are they have to be reliable, of course, fault tolerant, uh, they have real-time requirements, mm -hmm. and the m well, maintainability is one, one big question. Because, because they, they have a long lifetime. Yeah. 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 Um, Let's look at two or three of the patterns, and we, we probably can't cover the whole paper, but that's unnecessary. So let's look at two or three of the patterns that are maybe non-obvious to, to some of our listeners, maybe. Well, um, maybe I should start with uh, one that is quite fundamental. Uh, it's called separate real-time. And usually with these machines, you have real-time requirements, but of course you want some higher-level functionality there. You want to provide uh, a logging, error handling capabilities, maybe debugging cap and user interface for yeah. the operator. Yeah. So you need high-end PC there. Mm -hmm. And But the problem is that uh, usually these high-end services are more fault tolerant. Uh, they are not fault tolerant so much. Yes. And there is no, no way that we can take the risk that the real-time part of the system can be uh, interfered with these right. programs. Mm -hmm. So so you have to separate these two to ensure that not, nothing danger is going to happen. Mm -hmm. For example, in the forest harvester, you have to make sure that the log is not fed <laughs> through the cabin. <laughs> yes. yeah. Oh, that's actually checked. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Checked. I, I didn't expect. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can do that <laughs> if you are trying. <laughs> so and the, so the thing knows the length of the log, so you know when it uh, will no, collide. No, it knows the speed ah, and, okay. and the distance to the cabin, so okay. it can calculate uh, and the direction of the feeding whether. Mm -hmm harvest their head is feeding the log. Mm -hmm. So and so what you're saying is basically as you say you should separate those two, but if the if the real time part has to feed information to let's say a user interface and that is slow. Yeah. How do you avoid that the slow user interface, you know, slows down the real time part. There needs to be some indirection or something in there. Well you, ha you have a bus there and you have a message queue that is used at mm -hmm. Between there, actually, mm -hmm. that's a pattern in our language. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and it, so it's solved. And in addition to these two levels, there can be more, of course. There, right. there can be third level that is emergency stop. Right. There you have very, very, very strict 
response time requirements because yeah. you have to make sure it really stops when it's supposed to. So, so we had once an episode where we talked to um, uh, Klaus Malkort who is working in these live support systems. And what I think is funny is that uh, in their case, the emergency, well, it's not an emergency stop. It's an emergency open the oxygen line so the guy doesn't die. Mm. And that's actually mechanical. There is no software in it all, at all. <laughs> well, basically, the emergency top level is something that is really in the hardware. Right. But there might be some software in there. Okay. And of course, maybe the software part is just like uh, it is. It is over. Everything else is overridden in the software. It's mm -hmm. the priority one mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. stop everything. Mm -hmm. Another one. Well, mm, uh, here's a permit authority pattern. Uh, well, uh, as we are talking about distributed systems here, we have multiple nodes that are lo located in different places in the mm -hmm. machine. Mm -hmm. uh, the decision making is a challenge. Uh, how, right. how, uh, how do you make decisions and ensure that the consequences will be safe? Mm -hmm. They will not harm the machine or the operator. Yeah. The solution basically is to add one dedicated component that has the system state. It keeps the state in one place and make sure that the information is new enough there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And every other node in the system, they will have to ask permission to perform an action mm -hmm. from this supervised node. Problem, of course, c can be that there will be or there might be a bottleneck or performance, performance, uh, sorry, communication bottleneck there if everybody asks the guy, you know, the central decision maker for everything. Of course, uh, for example, the emergency stop, yeah. as we discussed already, uh, you can't ask that, you do it. Yeah. You go to the safe mode. Yeah. You, yeah, you, yeah. you don't ask anything. But usually when you start something, uh, for example, uh, a drive could ask from the authority node that can I start a engine mm -hmm. and maybe there's some something for example handbrake is on so it no well maybe transmission controller would ask if there is a handbrake right. or, yeah, 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 or yeah. something like that mm -hmm. and maybe third one it's called sandbox mm -hmm. and the idea is that usually in these systems you have also third-party applications uh, such as remote diagnostics or mm -hmm. or maybe in case of mining trucks they have their own software at the mine that is sending drilling plans to the right. machine or or information you should go there and pick up some stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it's a problem because we need to offer interface for the third party to how they can use the system but they have to do it in a, in a way that it's safe it, it cannot interfere with the normal operation yep. of the system, of yeah, course. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we basically say that you should add a sandbox or, well, kind of virtual machine there mm -hmm. where you put those software and you can give the interfaces to the third party developers and mm -hmm. it, it increases the time to market of this software for the third party, mm -hmm. it benefits them. And of course, when it's sandboxed, it, it doesn't mm, cause any harm to the actual mm -hmm. operating software of the machine. Mm -hmm. So so since you're talking about harvesters and uh, mining trucks, do you actually get to play with all these machines when you do this research or is this... Unfortunately, no. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> but we have tried the simulator. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. nice. Cool. Okay. So I, I guess, um, uh, well, I guess that's it. 
Well, pretty much. Uh, I would like to say that one thing more mm-hmm. that uh, sure. we, are, we are continuing this work. Mm-hmm. Now we have 35 patterns. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and we are developing a language. Mm-hmm. And our goal is to get generative language for this domain. Cool. So new developers can take it and okay, this is this is the way I'm going to build this machine. Uh-huh. But you've submitted only like six or six or seven patterns. Yeah, right? we we have a part of those now written down here and we okay. want to get feedback on them before okay. we go forward and right. write all of them right we, we have all these uh, like um like pattern ideas yes yes and there are some notes on there mm-hmm. so this is work in progress mm-hmm. so once you finish this stuff why don't you get back to me and we'll do an episode on this in detail because i i we've had a couple of things on embedded systems but not enough And, uh, well, th- the nice thing about pattern language is, for me as an interviewer, it's very easy to step through and ask the right questions because I just take the pattern title and formulate it as a question. So if you're interested, um, just get back to me when you're finished. Sure. Cool. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website, or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dig Reddit delicious links and the slash dot button. To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net, or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, are licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsife Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle.